Welcome to the Disruptor Series Podcast, Adweek's Agency Podcast of the Year. The following was recorded live at TBWA Shiite, New York. Here's your host, Doug Melville, Chief Diversity Officer of TBWA. All right, everybody. Damn! This is a party tonight! Summer Thursdays! Okay. All right, this is a big treat for us. We got a full house tonight. We got some slow jams playing. Elaine's sending soundtracks. Okay, so uh, first of all, I want to thank everybody for coming here this evening, this afternoon. We appreciate it. Give yourselves a round of applause. Getting out work early today. We got so many people. This room looks just like New York City, which feels good, and I, I love the energy of it all. So this is TBWA. Um, this is our... 51st Disruptor Series, so thanks for all those, and it's the first time coming. We appreciate you. We're glad you're here to support um, our great guest today. Uh, we will have copies of her book at the end, so everyone will walk away with a copy. We have more than enough copies, you know what I'm saying? That's what I'm saying. Um, so uh, we left notes on everybody's seat. Uh, for you to hashtag, pull some great quotes. Um, Elaine's whole book is quotable. Um, it's an amazing read, and I'm excited that each of you all could be here for her one Madison Avenue appearance. So um, without further introduction, uh, my name's Doug Melville. I'm the Chief Diversity Officer of TBWA and uh, co-creator of the Disruptor series. So three years ago, I went to Rob Schwartz, our CEO, and I said, Rob, what would happen if we started a talk show in the lobby? And he said, what would happen with such talk show? And I said, no, we'll bring in guests and we'll have a big party. And he's like, let's do it. So 51 episodes later, we're here today. So thank you so much. So without further ado, our guest today is an award-winning journalist and judge on the new season of Project Runway. Um, she's most recently editor of Teen Vogue, and she's the youngest person ever appointed to that role in 2017, and the first African-American to ever be a beauty editor in Condé Nast. 107-year history. So without further ado, I would like a warm welcome for the one and only Elaine Welteroth, our amazing disruptor today. Hi, guys. You can give more energy than that. Yes. All right, this is, this is hot. I just have to say, yeah. how many of us want a late night show hosted by this man? Yeah. I'd watch it. All right, that one, I'll take it. Inshallah. I'll take it. Yeah, yeah, okay. I we're like manifesting. That. We're going to manifest our dreams. So we, uh, we're debuting our first red carpet stage today for you, Elaine. We got red carpet coasters here. Okay. Wow, thank you. We see you at the Met Gala hosting the show number one rated this year, oh. Inclusion. I see oh. you, okay. Um, so I want to just start off by saying uh, I watched you this week on Jimmy Fallon, which was amazing. Good Morning America with Robin Roberts. I listened to you on NPR, New York Times, The Breakfast Club. I just want to ask you, how has the last 72 hours of your life felt? You did your research. <laughs> incredible. It, absolutely incredible. Writing a book is hard. And it's, it's work that you, can do, you have to do alone. It's you and your laptop in your pajamas. No makeup on, no hair, stripped down. Especially if you want to write a book that, this is not a fluff book. 
this required bearing my soul in some ways and putting my heart onto every page. So to be on this side of it, where now, I mean, like, it's like, I literally feel like I'm giving birth to a baby. Yeah. And now I'm like pushing it out into the world. Mm. And now it's like out there finding friends. I'm finding outfits for her. Yeah. It's like, now this is the fun part. And I just, I just can't, I, I, my first chapter in this book, the introduction is called Intention. Mm. And I set, really specific intentions for this book. And so it feels so good to now be putting it out into the world and to seeing the and to be able to see these sort of intentions take shape. And I don't know if any of you were there on for the launch, but I did this event at uh, a church in Brooklyn. I, I had these 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 young black ballerinas from ABT and Ailey praise dance down the halls, oh, the aisles beautiful. of the church to Jill Scott, living my life like it's golden. It was so extra. It was the mo my, my publishing team was like, you're gonna do what? I'm like, you, you're making me do this in a church, so we gonna have Black Girl Magic Church. And they're like, but there's no space for them to dance. I was like, there's aisles in the church, right? And I'm like, they're like, yeah. I'm like, you've clearly never been to black church. <laughs> we take up space and we use the space we have. Yeah. I'm like, I'm gonna send some praise dancers. And you should have seen them there. They were like, wow. You know, it was amazing. And, amazing. and then, you know, Lupita danced down and we just had this really, really, really special intimate moment with so many um, young girls of color. And it just, it, it really, it, it's the reason I did this. It's, uh, the reason I wrote this book is to be in conversation with my people. And you guys are my people. And by yeah. the way, I had no idea there was so many people of color in this industry. Yeah, wow. they all came they, here. They might all be in this room right now. Yeah, no, if, there, if there's a fire, it might not be good. <laughs> um, the future of diversity and inclusion in advertising ends yeah, today. Yeah, it ends right here at <laughs> right. the end of this red carpet. Right. Right. Um, so for those, uh, we know, most people know you as a journalist, but you actually started in advertising uh, as an intern. Yeah. And then after three months, you decided to be a journalist. So that was positive. <laughs> it only took well, you 90 days to know that you didn't want to do this. Is well, no one complimented my outfits. And okay, I was just like, yeah. maybe this isn't the industry for me. Um, so tell us, about, tell us about that or why... <laughs> Did that help you find your path? 100%. Mm -hmm. But wait, we have to shout out Pyle. Okay, Christina, yeah. Christina Pyle, Pyle, who was my intern. She was my first friend at MAPE. How many MAPERs do we have in here? Yeah. Yes! So I was summer 2017, and Christina Pyle was my first Seven, friend. 2007. Sorry, 2007. I haven't slept in three days. <laughs> Sorry. I forgot to tell you, how was my last 72 hours? I'm exhausted. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you guys are about to get the real raw uncut version oh, it's today. It's happening right here. It's happening right here. Yeah. But anyways, Christina Powell was my first friend that I made in MAPE. I walked into the bathroom and I saw her and I had, I was, I'm such an, a, like a, a nerd and a type A person. I studied the faces of all the people who were coming in my cohort and I decided who was going to be my friend before I even got there. <laughs> and I walked in the bathroom and I was like, Christina Pyle, we're going to be friends. <laughs> she was scared. She was like single black female. This is weird. And... It all worked out. She, no, but she she really is the reason that this is happening. She is such a, an amazing, supportive friend. I just wanted to shout her out for bringing us together. Yeah. And she just got a new job at Time's Up, so. Yeah, I'm proud of her. I actually met Christina Pyle. Uh, I was a guest professor at University of South Florida, and uh, she was one of the students in the class. And uh, afterward, the uh, professor of the department came by and goes, there's one student who's a star. Christina J. Pyle, and that's how her and I were introduced. So, yeah, she's uh, our connectivity here today. And she was literally a celebrity. She was on Road Rules. Yeah, she was on Road Rules. The teacher was like, she's a little old for college because she did a reality show. I'm 
like, cool, I want to do a reality show and be old for college. Anyway, I didn't even answer your question, but yeah, um, um, bringing it back. Yeah, bringing it back. So I remember being in the midst of a college crisis, like an actual existential crisis, which I think we've all been through at some point, if not many points in our career. But the idea of getting to the end of college and having to figure out what happens next was mm -hmm. so incredibly daunting for me. I feel like we don't prepare college students for that enough. Mm -hmm. um, and so all I knew was I, I'm creative, I love telling stories, I love pulling stories out of people, and I'm very visual. Mm -hmm. What the hell do I do with that? I need to, and I'm first generation college grad, you know, I have no fallback plan. I do not come from wealth. Like, I have to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And I knew I wanted to be extraordinary. I've known that since I was a child. I don't even know. At that point, I was like, I don't know what that means. I just know if I come from a very ordinary town, small town, I want extraordinary. But how do I make that happen? I know no one in New York. And so the day I found out about MAPE changed my life. It was an opportunity, to, like, a paid opportunity to go to New York to build with a cohort of other young people of color who were also creative. And so it, it really completely opened up my world and I'm forever grateful to MAPE. And through MAPE, I got the internship at Ogilvia Mather. Very sexy on your resume. I got there and I just felt that it wasn't the right culture for me. I felt a little bit invisible there. And I think, you know, I, I also learned that, you know, by watching the colleagues or my, my bosses, I was like, they work so hard and so, so many hours. I was like, damn, if I'm going to be investing this much of my time mm -hmm. in my career, I have to love it. Yeah. The only way to be excellent, the only way to be extraordinary is if I'm in my purpose. And I could feel myself like atrophying. I could feel myself shrinking, like my light was actually dimming in that environment. And there was actually this one thing that happened. Actually, I read about this in the book. It was the first time for me where like I grew up in an all white predominantly white neighborhood and school system. I, I'm used to being one of the only in the room or the only in the room who looks like me. But this was the first time that that was actually compounded with this uh, sort of social status hierarchy that, and I called it like I, my introduction to East Coast white people because I'm from the Bay Area. And what I, I'm like, oh, at least in the Bay, we have similar culture. We're all like, right. we all dance to E40. You know, we all ghost ride the whip. You know, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, Ivy League, East Coast, like what, this is a different level, like a different echelon. Sure. And, and I was so intimidated. And I was really high achieving. I was always at the top of my class. I was the senior, junior class president. I was used to excelling in these spaces when I was the only one. But this was like, it was truly intimidating to me to the point where it silenced me. And I remember feeling like no one was looking at me and, the, and they weren't. And so because they weren't looking at me, I wouldn't speak. And then because I wasn't speaking, I thought they thought I was dumb. So then I thought I maybe am dumb. Like it literally, it it ate away at my self-esteem. And at the and and I tried to push back as much as I could. And I, I remember calling home and crying to my mom. I was like, they they don't even look at me. They don't even see me here. And at the very end of the internship, one of my my white colleagues um, said to me, and she was sort of like the self-appointed leader in the in the intern group. And she said, she said to me at the very, the very last day, she was like, Elaine, she was like, oh, you know what? She was like, I, and she said this in front of our whole intern group. She was like, you know what? One day when I'm the president of my company, I would totally hire you, Elaine. 
Mm-hmm. And I was like, how you know I'm not going to be the one hiring you? You know, I, excuse me. Like, and it was just in that moment that I just, I just took it in, which we do. We do that. We just absorb it. And now we have black Twitter to vent. Yeah. But I was just, I walked away from that experience realizing what it feels like when you're not in the right place. Mm-hmm. And I knew early, early on, before stepping into my actual career, that that's not how I want to feel going to work every day. So it pushed me harder to figure out what is my passion, what is my purpose, and how can I, what is the first step that I really need to take? And it forced me to push past fear, because I think the what drew me to advertising, and and this is just me, my motivation was like making money and having a stable career path where there was a clear trajectory. And the idea of working in magazine journalism, especially at the beginning of the recession, was just not the safe route at all. It was very competitive, especially I was interested in fashion and beauty. Um, but coming out of that experience made me brave. It made me bolder. It made me emboldened. And I wouldn't be where I am had I not had that experience. So I think sometimes you have to do, you have to figure out what you don't want in order to figure out what you do and in order to fight to go get it. Sure, that's very true. And. When you left the agency there, is that what drove you to work at Ebony because it was a predominantly black magazine? Was it kind of the yin and yang effect? Or That's interesting. I never I never thought of it as like cause and effect. I, I definitely know it caused me to dig deeper and figure out and, and really excavate the dream that I probably always had of being a magazine editor, but I was just too afraid to say out loud. Yeah. And then it also pushed me into a soul-searching mode early on, which led me to finding out about Harriet Cole, who at the time was the editor-in-chief of Ebony. Yeah. And Ebony was not a magazine I read. It was like your dusty uncle uncle and aunt's magazine. Yeah. I mean, it's I can in the say dentist that. office, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. I can say that in the presence of family. <laughs> yeah. um, but but, but I've, I found out about this woman, and I was just like, I, I was in this face of, place of trying to figure out, like, you know, what am I supposed to do, and how do I put all these gifts and talents and my passions into one title or one career path? And then I found out about this woman, and I was so inspired by her. I mean, she was doing this before, like, everyone was a multi-hyphenate. Now everybody's a multi-hyphenate, yeah. and this was pre-Instagram. So I had to snail mail her and, like, cold call her to get an opportunity to speak with her. And um, I basically stalked her, and yeah. it was a lot. And uh, But eventually we got a, an opportunity to have an informational phone call, and she hired me five months later. She called me back out of the blue and hired me. And um, there's a whole the whole story is in here, but... But yeah, that's how I ended up starting at Ebony. And I I walked in the first day. Everyone was like, why would you go work at Ebony at that time? Yeah. Because it yeah. wasn't the sexy option. Yeah. And I had the opportunity actually to work at, es- at Essence as an intern, which was my dream job, like mm. dream job at the time. But when I, when I connected with Harriet, I just knew that I knew that I knew in my spirit, working with this woman is going to change my life. And I learned at that point, I was because everyone was like, why would you do that? Well, you should go for Essence. Like, and I was just like, I'm not, this is a God thing. I just know it. I know it. And so I called Essence back, which was the hardest thing to do ever, because I literally had told them in the interview, I was like, just give me the janitorial job. And I swear, I swear, I one day, let me get yeah. my pinky toe in the door. Like, yeah, yeah. you know? And one no, day, but that's how I'm we had to get in if we don't know anybody. We have to get in just by any means necessary. Any means necessary. I went so hard for it. And then I called them back and I was like, yeah, so I'm going to be working for your competitor instead. And I'm not coming. And it was the best decision I ever made. And what I learned from that is do not chase the sexy. Do not chase the sexy. When I I spent that summer at Ebony, and I will tell you, the first day I got there, I cried in the bathroom because I was like, "Oh my God, this is not like the Devil Wears Prada." Like, 
So where is the fashion closet? And it was so, it was just so under-resourced. And they told me like my first assignment was like, go make the beauty closet, yeah. like clean it up. And I was like, great. Yes, where is it? And they open the door and it's like this abandoned storage closet with like manila folders spilling out of ripped bags and like yeah. relaxer kits like up to my knees. And I was just like, I've made a mistake. <laughs> my God. And then at the end of the summer, this is how I knew I made the right decision. Well, actually, I knew I made the right decision two weeks in when we were shooting Michelle Obama. And I was on set and I got, and she brought eight of her girlfriends to set. So my job was to like, Kiki with them, and one of them, need, my claim to fame that day was one of them needed a tampon in the bathroom, and I was like, I have a tampon, and, and then I became the tampon girl, and I was like, I am Michelle Obama's yeah. friend's tampon girl. Yeah. I'm good. Mama, I have made it. Um, but, but at the end of that summer, at the end of that summer, it was the first time that Time Inc., which owns Essence, did not extend an offer, a job offer, to a single intern because it was right at the beginning of the recession. So had I gone to Essence to chase the sexy, I would have been sent back home, I would have had to start all over, and I would have been in the unemployment line. That changed your whole life. It changed my whole life. And then I just decided, because no one told me to leave at Ebony, even though my internship was technically over, I just kept coming. <laughs> and because they were so understaffed, they were just like, kept giving me stuff. And so I kept doing stuff. And then I just kept getting paid somehow. Cause that HR department probably wasn't paying attention. I don't know. So. You were the HR were, department. I literally was also the HR. <laughs> so like you guys, seriously, my, my, this paper I signed said the internship was over August 31st. Mm -hmm. September came, October, November. And I just didn't say anything. And then I changed my title from intern to production assistant, just, just yeah. casual upgrade. Yeah, yeah. And then they started calling me production assistant. Yeah, oh, that's great, yeah. Because oh. they needed a production assistant. So I was getting paid $10 an hour mm -hmm. to now be production assistant. So now it's like January. And okay. I'm like, I need a raise. <laughs> So I, this is like peak millennial stuff right here, you guys. Yeah, yeah. Like, what was I thinking? Yeah. So I go and march into Harriet's office and I tell her I need a raise. Yeah. I just can't work like this. And I don't go like that, but like essentially, when I look yeah. back, I'm like, oh my God, I cannot believe I did this. And, and I ask for $20 an hour. Yeah. And they say no. <laughs> and then I say, I'm really gonna have to think about this. And so I don't come in the next day as a bargaining, like, yeah. as like a move. Like yeah, no, a this is move. all you got. You got to ride what you got. You guys, this is bold. And I do not recommend this. Yeah. I don't actually work at TBWA. Uh, <laughs> no, I just came in. Thanks, someone, guys. Someone just gave you a mic, basically. Yeah, they don't even know. Yeah. I was terminated last <laughs> Friday. Maybe this is the new wave of the world. But yeah, yeah. anyways, long story short, so I come back in and, and the next day and I just am prepared like to, to really say I'm, I can't do this for mm -hmm. what you're offering. And I, I'm so scared though. And I walk in and Harriet is looking at me like with the death stare. And I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing? And then she says, um, Elaine, what you did yesterday. And as soon as I was like, oh, that black mama voice. Oh, oh, like PTSD. And, and she's like, it was very smart. <laughs>
Oh, wow. She said, um, I called Chicago, the, the home office, and I told them that I cannot do this job without your support. Wow. And so we have found the budget. Mm. You will now get paid $20 an hour. No overtime. <laughs> no benefits. Don't do it again. Yeah. And I walked out of... Literally, do you understand? I doubled my salary for a job I didn't even technically have yeah. in the middle of the freaking recession. I was now I really was like, yeah. Mama, I for real made it. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I changed. That was the moment when I changed my 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 phone number. I changed my area code from um, five one zero, which is the Bay Area, to nine one seven because I was like, I'm not going back. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. You know, that is really how you have to do it sometimes, though, because when we walk in an industry or especially the creative space, you don't have any contacts. You got to hold on to what you know. And, you know, you hustle. saw the need, you know, the hustle and the flow. So you work at Ebony for how long did you stay there after the January um, A pay raise? Okay. It felt like forever. Yeah. But it was really, in real life, only like four years or so. But um, I had the opportunity of a lifetime. I mean, it was hard. It was really, really hard. I mean, after, I, I didn't take for granted what Harriet had done for me. Mm -hmm. I literally would not be in this seat if Harriet had not opened the door for me and, and fought for me in that moment. And so after that, I was, like, I, I will, I was like, I will never let you regret that decision. And I worked overtime for her. I mm -hmm. stayed there after 12 p.m. every almost every night and they started calling me pb and j because i was just coming with a stack of pe peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and then i would just like eat go down and every day it would just be like they'd be like what's up pb and j when they leave and i'd be like there till like 2 a.m but i worked really really hard there and um got some really incredible opportunities ground up opportunities you know i learned how to do a, a lot with a little I learned how to be really scrappy, and I also learned how to advocate for the outside voice mm -hmm. and how to write about and celebrate black culture. And um, every time I walked into the room, my responsibility was to epitomize black excellence and to bring respect to our culture because Ebony was at a time, they were, you know, it was a magazine that was in decline yep. and wasn't necessarily respected in the fashion and beauty space, and I saw that as an opportunity. I thought my job is as the outsider is to come in and to get what we don't have. Yep. From respect to front row seats to invitate, let's start with invitations to the shows. And so anything we didn't start. have, yeah, <laughs> anything we didn't have, rather than complaining about it or just being like, ugh, like I have to get to a sexier place, I was like, I have to create what we don't have. Mm -hmm. And I think that really set me up well because by the time I finally did, get my opportunity to go to Condé Nast, there were departments for the jobs I was doing by myself. Yeah. And, and it's also the only way you could really learn all the jobs. I mean, how would you ever way. be able to know all the different verticals? Because, you know, the swim lanes are defined by the time you get to Condé Nast. Absolutely. So, and how, when you made the transition over to Glamour, how were you able to... Um, sometimes the argument is that people that work for black companies or minority-owned businesses are less than. My argument right. is it's greater than. Yes. Because these individuals had to work really twice as hard and do have less resources and yep. less contacts and so forth. But how were you able to make that transition to the Glamour magazine? How did that affect 
the conversation? It was really difficult. And I think one of the reasons I cried in the bathroom that first day was because I worried that I'd be pigeonholed mm -hmm. in black media and then it would be difficult for me to cross over. And, and then I just decided I had work to do here and I'm gonna embrace this opportunity and make the best of it. And I worked there during the election of President Barack Obama. Yeah. I <laughs> I work Michelle Obama's in the audience, guys, for yes. that. And Just, uh, yes, you can't friends. see her, but I promise. But I, you know, there were so many, there were so many extremely uh, just proud moments to be black that yeah. th that I had working at Ebony, um, and at the same time, when I, I I realized that actually my superpower, my my mission in the world is actually to be a bridge mm -hmm. between divides, and that I could do more transformative work on the other side mm -hmm. by bringing all of this black excellence yeah. where it's actually really needed. And so um, I set my sights on Condé Nast that first day. After that, I cleaned up my face and then I was like, one day I will work there. And when I got ready to go out and interview, I, I literally interviewed at every single magazine on the newsstand and every single one ultimately rejected rejected me. But And what I got, what I kept hearing was that I'm overqualified. And it just felt like code language, yeah. code term. Like, what does that actually mean? Because as a manager, I know as a manager now, I mean, I would love to hire somebody who's overqualified. Yeah, yeah. You and know? plus you're only a few years out of school, so it's like hard to be I'm so I'm cheap over and overqualified. Like, what is the problem? Yeah, yeah. You're like too good for this place. <laughs> I mean, we can't even have you, sorry. Right, win-win. So it, so it started to send a message to me that, yeah. that even though I came in with all of this experience for my age, and had been punching above my weight, wearing all of these different hats, could mm -hmm. add so much value. Somehow it was discounted because of the stigma yep. that came with working at a magazine like that. Like a black and your age, in addition. It was like a two for one. Probably, and so it was really difficult. But once I got to, teen, once I got to Glamour, um, which by the way, that process, it, it messed with me for sure. And I remember going through this like, assimilation syndrome because yep. I, I mean that's it. high fashion that's the mecca of every job you want to get i mean Conde Nast. i mean vogue is at the top and yeah. then there's and then yes i mean working at glamour is it's a it's the money-making magazine of Conde Nast, mm -hmm. or it was and so when i got there i was sort of like i just just need to get my job and keep my job by any means necessary and so this shrinking thing started happening again yeah and it started and you could see it in my hair i was like slicking my hair into a low bun just didn't want to distract didn't want to intimidate like i was wearing khaki slacks and yeah. i was you know i changed you know it just it, it being in that environment and it a lot of it's internal it's not like someone's telling you you know, this is the culture, this is how you must behave, this is how you must dress, but you feel that pressure, especially as a young person. I just wanted to be respected, I wanted to build credibility and authority, and, and um, but I learned a lot there. And, you know, there were some, some moments that I had that I talk about in the book, you know, being mistaken for the only other black girl on staff, who you looks look nothing, nothing like. like me. She's <laughs> Haitian with like straight hair and is a tomboy and like she's quiet and I'm clearly like the exact opposite. And we, we talk about that, we're, we're friends to this day and we work together at Teen Vogue, but those moments just, again, I, I sort of, I felt invisible in that environment in some ways. Is that how you came up with the title More Than Enough is to encourage people to really bring their whole self and that they are more than enough? Definitely, I think the, the book title it speaks to this idea that for generations, we've been conditioned, we being women, 
women of color, black women in particular, um, been made to feel that we're not enough. And there's a reason for that. And then we start to internalize those messages and we start to feed them to ourselves. And we've all, been, no matter where you come from, no matter what you look like, we've all at some point felt not good enough, not pretty enough, not successful enough, not smart enough, not you know credible enough, not woke enough. I mean, you go, the list goes on and on. And so the through line of this book and like the and really the core message of it is it's just a reminder to us that when we have those messages when that self-talk comes up to push back and remind yourself that you are more than enough even when you are a work in progress yeah that's amazing you know one thing that i thought that was so powerful about this book was number one the fact that you actually wrote the book because everybody uses ghost writers you know i mean <laughs> I'm a no, writer. No I, no, I know, but I'm saying it's really, it, I felt like it was a real-life Carrie Bradshaw, you know what I'm saying? I felt like it was like a modern sex in the city where you're a young girl that moves to New York City to be a journalist, and you break down all the doors and get the dream role. So I thought that was like just so exciting and so great to read. So well written. I read it in two sittings, so it was so, it's really, you are, it's, you're an amazing at, writer and amazing at your craft. But um, tell me when you got to uh, Teen Vogue, so just to cut ahead a little bit. So yeah. you get to Teen Vogue um, and you're the beauty director mm -hmm. and that job was around two years and then they offer you the opportunity to, you earned the opportunity to be editor in chief. Uh, so kind of walk us through that moment because was it like Devil Wears Prada or is? Well, I think it's, it's interesting because I think it's important to, point out that the real change for me happened when I became the beauty director because that's when I went from glamour, mm -hmm. um, assimilation syndrome, Elaine, to being held up in the headlines for the first time as being a black girl who's making history. And it's not like when I applied for that job or um, at Teen Vogue to be the beauty director, I, like I knew I was going to be the first black yeah. beauty director in Kanye Nas history. You, we, we, unfortunately, they don't tell you that in the interviews. <laughs> Um, so then it you happened. Know? You had no, no, I had no idea. idea. Right? I read yeah. it in the headlines like everybody else, and and it was it, it was a it was a critical turning point for me to see that because it put into perspective the responsibility that comes with that role. I was sort of prepared to go into that just like the same way I was how I had been operating, like just follow the rules, like just you know figure out the formula and just deliver mm -hmm. against that. But when I when I when that happened, it, it made me recognize that no matter what I do, no matter how much I conform or code switch, my race will always walk into the room before I do. Mm -hmm. And so let me embrace that. Yep. As a journalist, let me figure out how to utilize that as a superpower. And it really it pushed me to come to, to work, to come to that job with more of myself. And I, I started to ask myself, like, what are the stories only I can tell? This is when I started to get into like purpose work, you know what I mean? And it yeah. didn't, and it happened, it happened slowly and through beauty. And I didn't come in with my fist up, you know? And I think yeah. it, when you read the story of like how Teen Vogue got woke, it feels like an overnight success. And like, oh, they hired this black girl, and then all of a sudden it got woke, and then boom, like, wow. And it's like, it just didn't happen that way. It happened over years, and it happened story by story, hire by hire courageous conversation after courageous conversation internally. And that is what resulted in what eventually became this transformation of Teen Vogue. So I do think it's important just to kind of acknowledge like that evolution before that day. And by the time I was promoted, we were so off to the races already. I mean, we'd had a couple really 
pivotal moments that had kind of put us on the map in a different way. You know, we were traditionally a, a, a fashion magazine for young people, and over time we had become a, a like a, a, a vehicle for political conversations and and even through beauty you know we were elevating the conversation around cultural appropriation and my goal was to create this platform that was sort of this intersection that elevated all aspects of our readers identities i mean this next generation of young people they care about politics they see themselves as activists and as change makers and yet there was no mainstream platform that reflected them properly and you know i wanted i i knew that they cared about fashion and the kardashians and selfies yes but that's not all they care about yeah. and we should be able they and they also care about politics and these things are not mutually exclusive so that was kind of our that the thesis like the the mission and we were already doing that and we were our 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 sort of tactic was we were prepared to ask for forgiveness, but we were not really asking for permission. Yeah. Which I guess, looking back, I've always kind of obviously been on that tip because yeah. of the, the changing of my title. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, and I had an extraordinary team there um, of young people who were sort of outsiders that had found their way into this, this really insider system, and, and we changed it from the inside, and it felt really, really, it felt really good, but it wasn't easy. And so that's part of why I wrote the book, because I think the only way that we hear these success stories is through headlines and highlight reels on the internet. And I just feel like if I am going to be held up as a trailblazer, then I need to be doing everything in my power to leave that trail with signposts along the way yeah. that are going to make it less daunting, less isolating, less confusing for the next young woman of color who's coming up behind me. Because I don't want to be first if I'm not going to be, if, if I'm like the last. I want to make sure there are so many other girls coming up behind me who are able to navigate this easier. Because it wasn't easy. It was not easy. And everything from salary negotiations to toxic relationships that threaten to take you off of your course. And that's the other thing. When we talk about success stories, with, with, especially with women, we don't talk about our personal lives. And these things intersect. So I, I go in. It gets juicy. Yeah, no, I talk it's about juicy. The, it's juicy. Talk about the men's, the messy yeah. men. It was real honest, yeah. I think that's going to be a surprise for people, don't you? Yeah, like, yeah. Did you know no, what you, could, did you, know what you nah, were in nah, for? Nah, nah, The green-eyed guy, yeah. I'm paying attention. <laughs> I see how your tastes have changed, Elena. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, we're both mixed race. Uh, yeah. Shout out to all the half-black, half-white people. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay, two of us. Um, <laughs> but wait, uh, who's black and who's white? Because it make for me, I think, I like... Oh, 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 now you're just naming names. I'm just saying. Well, actually, my mom and dad are both half black and half white. Oh. And, uh, all four of so my grandparents are half black and half white, yeah. I'm the half blackest, half whitest person you've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you use a term of, uh, that Shonda Rhimes coined, F-O-D. What, what is that all about? First, only different. He really, like, read, read the book. So that's, that's a good term, F-O-D. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, first, only different, um, which is Shonda Rhimes' um, acronym that she writes about in her book, um, Year of Yes. And it just, it jumped off, off the page for me. I was like, that's what I am. <laughs> I identified with it so much. And I'm sure so many of you in the room know what it is to be the only one in the room. And this book is the story of, for, of anyone who's yeah, ever been the only one in the room or yeah. the first to do something or different or other or youngest like and we don't have enough of those stories out there yeah. 
And you share the underside of it. So it's not all the highlight reel and the shiny internet. You really share that, you know, 85% of it's under the, you know, that picture of the iceberg under the water where it's like success is at the top. And then they're like, but underneath, <laughs> you know, so it's good to have a chance to, uh, but you verbalize it very well. So um, it takes the reader through the journey. But it's interesting. You, you cued that up by talking about the fact that we're both biracial. And I do think that being a lot of the firsts, a lot of black history firsts are actually made by people who are mixed race. Yeah. Barack Obama, Missy Copeland, Halle Berry, the list Lenny goes on. Kravitz, Lenny Mariah Kravitz, Mariah Carey. I have a African Hall of Fame in my house. Yeah, so just, yeah, yeah. I like, got a whole, I could just pull right out with Jordan Sparks. Who do you want? Yeah. Elaine, who do you want? Yes, I feel so seen. Elaine Welteroth, hello. But I think it's in, it, it, that's, not by, that's not a coincidence. Mm -hmm. There's a certain measure of white privilege that we enjoy, mm -hmm. whether we recognize it or not. And I think that it is important to acknowledge it so that you can use that privilege and that power and that access to open the door mm -hmm. for people who might not have had access. You know what I mean? Yep. So it, I've realized, like, I mean, growing up, it's awkward to be the black, half yeah, black, half white. You can't turn around. You know, when you, when you do research on half black, half white people, they can't ever go back, quote unquote, home because they're half of two different things. So they have to, you know, either drive themselves forward or a lot of times maybe get, you know, feel that shrinking feeling you spoke of because there is no back. It, you have to go forward and connect ahead. So... It doesn't work for everybody. I, totally. No, it, it feels like a little bit like you, you're required to be fluent in two different languages, in two different worlds, but you don't actually ever belong fully to either world. Yeah. So you feel like you exist in this in-between. And, and growing up, I know I, I never felt like I was black enough to be at the black table, but then I was never white enough to be anything other than the token black friend. And then in my career, later on down the line, I realized, actually, this is a superpower. Yeah. because it allows me to navigate both worlds. Yeah. It allows me to, um, and really, it developed a level of empathy in me to understand what it is to be an outsider. And it's helped me as a leader, as a boss, to employ like empathetic leadership so I can see who's on the margins in the room, and I can bring them in because I know what it is to be that person, sure. you know? So it's actually a superpower that we have. Yeah, I'll toast to that water. Um, so one thing that uh, when the Teen Vogue, I want to just touch really quickly on how you change really the face in front and behind the camera at Teen Vogue, particularly around that art of um, Solange and Zoe Kravitz and Willow Smith, you giving different opportunities to different people behind the camera and in front was an amazing way to actually show them through experience how inclusion can help the bottom line. So how did you bringing this superpower to an existing kind of quote unquote big shiny box make you feel, but also how did that change the perception of you? Because diversity, as I look at it, is a domestic emerging market. You know, it's really where all the growth is gonna come. It's really where the youth is. It's, you know, the changing face of America. How, how did that change the journey when you were able to show after those a series of small events that inclusion actually is the best thing for our business. Yeah. The business imperative. It's yeah. not just, these are not just buzz terms. Well, so the first time that I kind of used my position to 
do work for the culture internally. Um, well, actually, that first time went really, really wrong, but that's in the book, and you guys can read that later. Um, but the but two second weeks later, time, the, the second. second time, got it right. We shot three black models for the cover of Team Vogue, and my French creative director, who was um, trained in at Fr French Vogue, said that there are three things that she learned that do not sell on the covers of magazines. Mm. It's black people, mm. models, and anyone without a household name. And we were about to do all three. <laughs> yeah. And we were doing it in the month of August, which is the lowest selling yeah. issue usually. And that issue, it was the number one selling issue of the year. Wow. And it sold more than Kylie Jenner's cover. Okay. So it sent a and it, and it and it sent ripples throughout the industry. Suddenly, Teen Vogue was exalted as the fashion magazine that's doing you know doing the work to celebrate diversity, and and other magazines should take note and that kind of those kinds of headlines. Meanwhile, we just thought we were taking a risk and we weren't going to lose money this month, but we were willing to do that because it was the right thing to do. And these girls were the freshest faces in fashion at the time, and they deserved this platform. And so, and I got the opportunity to write that cover story. So suddenly, I'm also a part of this conversation about diversity and inclusion in the fashion industry. And I would say that the first time that I really owned my position to represent for, for us and for the, and to, the first time I really pushed for inclusion behind the scenes was the February 2016 cover with Amanda Stenberg, who was also a very unconventional cover for us. She didn't have a big blockbuster hit at the time. The last movie she was in was Hunger Games, which, which was years prior. But the reason she was relevant in that moment, the reason that I advocated for her, was because she had just done this viral Tumblr video called Don't Cash Crop My Cornrows. Do you guys remember that? It was like she basically schooled the world on cultural appropriation in the most articulate, beautiful way. And so we were I was so excited to put her on the cover. And and I got so excited, I, was, I brought references to the creative meeting um, that were actually Angela Davis references for her hair. And everybody loved them. And then I looked at the call sheet and there was gonna be a white hairstylist. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> like, if we do this, you know, black Twitter's coming for me. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I cannot, like, and at the time I was still beauty director and I was one of few if not, if not the only black person on staff. And, and it was very difficult and uncomfortable to push back and to raise this issue because this is just status quo. This is how it happens in fact. This is how shoots come together in fashion. There's a, a photographer who dictates the, the makeup and hair people. And usually the photographer is a white man yeah. and he likes to work with his, his same friends. set of yeah. people. And, but that is how you unintentionally build a racist system that keeps people who are not on the inside out. And therefore, you have to intentionally break down those systems to create space and to bring new people in. And particularly for black makeup and hair people, creative people in general, it's very, very difficult to break in because they don't have those relationships, they don't have the, the, the funds to be able, the, the means to be able to do these free internships and, and so I, I, I really, I was, and also for, in this particular case, it's Amanda, Amanda Stenberg. The reason we're putting her on the cover is because of cultural appropriation. And then we're gonna right. commit cultural appropriation yeah. and give her an Angela Davis afro. Like this is, just can't happen. Yeah, no, can't and happen. so I really, I, I, 
even though it was difficult, we, I advocated for this and it was not easy. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, uh, we were able to swap it out. We got this woman named Lacey Redway, who is, I don't know if you guys are familiar with her, but she's gone on to have an incredible career. And prior to this moment, she she was not able to get an editorial job, let alone one at a Vogue title. Yep. Um, even though she was the best, she was the best. And she was trained under the best for Guido. And I mean, so getting her on this set meant a lot, but it also, the stakes felt really high. Yeah. And she was, was overqualified. <laughs> She was overqualified, unfortunately. I know, right? Unfortunately, yeah, that's too bad. But, I, but, but it comes your with voice pressure. is so important because one of the things most people don't realize is that a voice is not a vote, um, and people that have voices need to turn that voice into a vote because sometimes people have a big voice and then they don't say anything and just try to keep their job or don't want to, you know, don't ruin the apple cart or you know, you're black, right? You know, like people are, say things like that all the time, so. It's a powerful moment when you use your power as a girl boss to uh, make it happen. So tell me uh, really quickly about the Trump Gaslighting America article and how that changed your life. Because that article came out, which was a political article uh, in Teen Vogue, and really pushed the exposure of what you were doing. And, And how did that affect your life? I mean, so that story, how many of you guys remember that story or read that story? Yeah. So that was written by a woman named Lauren, a young woman named Lauren Duca. Um, and it, it's so crazy because you do this work that is actually risk taking and you, and you don't ever know if anyone's going, if it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Like there was no formula that said that this is writing about politics and like social justice issues and Black Lives Matter, like this was going to work in terms of keeping the magazine alive. But we did it anyway because we knew that it was the right thing to do and in, in our instincts, it felt like mm-hmm. we just followed our instincts. And so um, we had been writing about, you know, these kinds of topics, news and politics um, and social justice issues for some time, but hadn't really hit critical mass. Yeah. And then this one story, this one story, it was like a weekend story that a weekend freelancer wrote and the headline was Trump is gaslighting America. And I'll never forget, it was December 10th, is my birthday. I had just turned 29 or 30. And I was just trying to have a vacation, y'all. I was in Turks and Caicos. And then suddenly my phone's blowing up. And it just, it pierced through the zeitgeist in a way that just somehow, it just, it just resonated so much because it put words to what so many of us were feeling at the time. And it was a, it, like suddenly Dan Rather's like retweeting Teen Vogue and like we're being asked to come on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah to talk about politics. And then, we're, and then with that comes defending this idea that young people and young girls who love fashion have the right to be at the table talking about politics. And actually Tucker Carlson had Lauren Duca on his show and challenged her on air and live TV in such a disrespectful, condescending way, by the way, and she held her ground. But at the end of it, he ends with, stick to the thigh-high boots. Stick to writing about thigh-high boots and cut her mic. And you can see her going, she's like, she's like yelling back. And she, yeah. But it was just, it just spoke to this larger concept that like we are, we do live in this world that makes us believe there are false binaries and we have to check a box. We are either smart or stylish. We either can care about fashion or politics. Like you're either serious or you're fun and playful. Like there's no way to be both. There's no intersection. And so we need to claim that intersection and, 
and make space for whoever we are. And that's what we were doing at Teen Vogue, and that's what I'm doing, hopefully, yeah, with no, this book. Yeah, it's beautiful. And then traffic went from 2 million to 12 million. Yes. Oh, yeah, subs. you want me to talk about the numbers? Well, no, yes. no, no, but, no. It's important. No, no, but, it's important. But I, I forgot about that. But I think it's important to know because that really pushed, yes, you know, it the saved, whole... Yes, it honestly saved the magazine. I think, I, I, yes. So that story spiked our numbers. We went from 2 to 12 million in traffic. We sold more magazine subscriptions in the month of December than we had all year. And then we grew like 300% each month after that in magazine subscriptions in 2000, help me with the numbers, 17? I mean like, yeah. 2017 when magazines were closing every day. I mean, yeah. it, so it really spoke to this idea that the, this is a, there's a new world order yeah. and all the rules do not apply at yeah. this moment. And it's, uh, it's exciting to be part of something like that, but the, one is. other thing you talked about was burnout and how you can reach you know, the limits of what you can do as a person and how it could affect your health. And how do you know when is time to say when? How do you know, what is the sign that you look for in yourself to say, uh, I'm gonna follow my gut and I'm gonna step away to, to grow and do something different? Mm. Your body will tell you. I could only be PB and J girl for so long. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like burning the candle at both ends and hustling super hard and doing 10 jobs at a time and like it was really reward the work has always been really rewarding and that's why I've always mm -hmm. given my whole self to it but I, I definitely w did not learn how to create boundaries and I got to a point where I was like this is like TMI but I, well one I lost a lot of weight and then I was I always had to pee <laughs> TMI, but I was like in meetings, like shaking, shaking, shaking. And I was like, I don't have time to go to the bathroom. I don't have time to go to the bathroom. And people would be like, the, you're, literally the table is shaking. Do you need to go to the bathroom? Like, yeah. why don't you just go? And it was sort of, and I ended up going to the doctor and finding out that it was a sign of anxiety. And I was like, I'm fine. I'm just busy. I'm just, I just got shit to do. Like, I just don't have time to go to the bathroom. Like, you know, yeah. but it's like, no, you're, you actually, your body is experiencing stress even if you're not consciously aware of it. And I say this in the book, I mean, I have a whole chapter about burnout, but this is what I will say. There is hustle and there is flow and you cannot successfully sustain uh, either. Um, you can't successfully sustain both without, wait, how did I just mess up my own quote? <laughs> you must know it. There's hustle and there is flow yeah. and you cannot yeah, sustain one without, without the, the other. other. Sorry guys, I haven't slept in three days, legit. So I need to follow my own advice. But I will say I am in flow because I think balance is bullshit. I don't think that anyone actually successfully achieves balance. And I don't think that the, the solution for burnout is necessarily slowing, is necessarily slowing down. Mm -hmm. I really think that it's about doing the work that feeds you, doing work that nourishes you. And so I feel like I was at a point where I had taken on so much of other people's jobs and hadn't created boundaries and hadn't figured out how to really be a boss. And because what bosses really do is delegate. And I think as a young black woman who constantly kind of moved through the world feeling like I had to work 10 times harder than anyone, it was hard for me to not take on more than I could and, and than I should have taken on. And I think we all have a tendency to do that. And you know, like back in the day in my 20s, my like mantra, which I found on Google was like, bite off more than you can chew and chew as fast as you can. And now I realize that that's, you know, bite off what you can chew, <laughs> chew it slowly, breathe, laugh in between, let it digest. Yeah. And that is, that's the pace of a marathoner. 
because the only that the sprinting like that will run you down and you will not be able to maintain long-term success, maintain success long-term. And so that's really kind of, I've changed gears and I think it's a luxury to be able to change gears and I think it happens after you've proven yourself in your career and you reach a certain level where you can say, okay, I, I now have boundaries, I now can say no to this and that. Um, and that's where I found myself. And I also looked up and realized I had done everything I had dreamed of and more in this magazine business that I, as a child, dreamed of. Mm -hmm. and, and now I'm here and I'm 30. I fought for a seat at the table. Now I'm at the head of the table. Yeah. And I want to now build my own table. Yeah. And so this book is my first table. table. Yeah. yeah, this book is my first table. And I'm excited about bringing people to my yeah. table this to book have conversations. Is so great. I want to ask you tonight, is Project Runway, yeah. Do you guys watch Project you Runway? Who in here? Do you guys have favorites? We're down to top four, bottom four. You guys have favorites? Bishmi, you know, you, you didn't see last week's episode, girl. Bishmi got eliminated, but. Uh, who is that? We got to take names. Uh, row seven, C4. Sorry to, sorry to break the news. Front and on Project Spoiler Runway. Uh, Sebastian. Okay. Anyone, team Hester? Anyone's team Hester? No? Shady. You guys are shady. Uh, Garrow, Sparrow, anyone? No. So, um, but yeah, it comes on tonight. I'm excited. We are going to um, wrap it up. But I just want to say that um, I'm going to ask you one final question is how do you define success in yourself moving forward? Um, before we go, that'll be your last question. Do you have an answer for that? I do. Elaine? Okay. I'm just, short, I was trying to short. get you. Okay. Don't worry. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> um, it's simple. It's one word. Um, liberation. So, you know, um, I want to just uh, close with a quote from uh, Ava DuVernay. Um, I've never heard of her before, but she wrote the foreword. No, I'm just kidding. Why did somebody say what? Um, in the foreword of your book, uh, this is a sentence uh, that she described your book. And uh, for me, it was the one thing that stuck out to me the most. It said, you strip away the facade of successes, the sheen and the shimmer of social media to give us a real gift. So I'd like to thank you so much, Elaine, for coming by today. Thank you guys so thank much. Thank you for, for being inspiring here. all of us. On the way out, everyone will get a book. And uh, we have uh, we loaded a money gun with some special um, Elaine Welteroth dollar bills. Um, and uh, Elaine was like, well, I can't shoot it, but you can. So uh, I'm going to just for the front row shoot some Elaine money in the building. Oh, man. But uh, give a warm round of applause for Elaine Welteroth. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Love you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for listening to the Disruptor Series podcast, Adweek's agency podcast of the year. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashydayny.com.